To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's going on, guys? Making it through your week? Making it through mine here. I just got to get this podcast out. Um, really excited to release this week's episode to you guys. So I sat down and recorded one with Corey Jacobson. Um, you guys have probably heard of Corey. He's been on multiple podcasts. He has his elk hunting website, Elk 101. Uh, he also did a film with Sitka the Linguist. Just a great film, really well put together. Um, but Corey focuses on calling elk. Um, so, you know, I wanted to do something different for this podcast. Uh, you know, we, we do get into calling as he just won the world championships of elk calling. So we couldn't help but talk about it, but I really wanted to focus on finding more elk, like starting from scratch. How do you pick a state? How do you pick a unit? And then how do you learn that unit and dissect it? And then, you know, how do you hunt? How do you scout? And then how do you hunt it during season? And so, um, it was it was just a, a great conversation about elk hunting, and it may be a little self-serving, too, as I'm hunting a couple different places this year for elk that I'm really excited about, but just a great conversation. I learned a lot from talking to Corey, super knowledgeable about elk hunting, and I'm sure you guys will, too, so um, thanks to Corey. He's also just a great guy. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversations, setting up the podcast, and then doing the podcast, but um, I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will, too. Sponsor for today is Taito Knives. Um, so Taito Knives, I've uh, been using them now for a couple years. I really like them. So they're uh, ultra lightweight, ultra sharp, uh, replaceable blade knives. And the replaceable blade knives have just revolutionized uh, uh, taking care of game in the field, like in-field butchering. I can break down an entire elk with one razor blade knife. I mean, everything from, you know, pulling the quarters, boning the quarters, you know, pulling the, the back straps, tenderloins, you know, carving off loose meat, even taking off the head. It's just amazing what a razor sharp knife does for you. You know, we used to have to bring multiple knives and sharpeners in to be able to butcher an elk. Their hide is so thick. But with these replaceable blade uh, ultra sharp, like you just change them out and then you're going again and you're skinning again or you're pulling off quarters or whatever the case is. But um, they're they're just unbelievable knives. Uh, I love Taito has came out with some new designs where they've got a 550 cord wrapped on the, the handle. I mean, I've had to use this 550 cord to tie... Um, like like racks, like when you harvest something and take off the head and then you have to tie the head to your backpack and I didn't have any cordage, so I had to use that cordage. And now they've been coming out with this bright cordage, this orange and this neon green. Um, basically, so you see your knife, so you don't leave it sitting somewhere. Anytime when you're working on an animal, you have to set it down to pick up a quarter. And it's so nice when it's bright orange or bright green, you just don't lose it. So a great company. I want to thank those guys for for being part of the podcast. Uh, I really like their knives. So Taito Knives, make sure you check them out, guys. Um, with that, let's see what's going on over there at Eastman's. Oh, we um we launched our new website. So uh, everybody's been working really hard in the office. We've been redoing the website. Uh, the podcast has a spot on it where um, you can actually go to and listen to the podcast there. Um, gosh, it Beyond the Grid. You can watch some of the Beyond the Grid on there. And it, it's just um, orchestrated and organized better. Um, so the crew's been working really hard. I've spent some time on the website. Uh, we kind of 
uh, all took our time and went through it so we know it inside and out, make sure there was no bugs or anything like that. But just a, a great website. Everybody worked really hard on it. So make sure you check it out. Uh, anything Eastman's, um, uh, you can find it at eastmans.com. And with that, uh, let's get this thing rolling. So it's all elk today. Uh, it's Corey Jacobson. Um, really fun conversation. So here we go. All right, I'm live here with Corey Jacobson. Uh, Corey, thanks a bunch for being on with me. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, well, I've been a fan of yours. I've been watching. Um, you've had a an interesting couple weeks here. I saw that you won the the World Championship elk calling. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, it was a fun weekend, definitely. Yeah, uh, had to be fun. I know you've been doing those competitions for quite a while. Is this the the first one that you you've actually won? No, I've uh, I've been fortunate to win a few times in the past as well, and this year they changed the format actually for the first time, and it was a head-to-head bracket style with single elimination, so it added quite a bit more pressure to the to the contest. So I think I was more nervous this year than I've ever been. Oh, uh, so they had you head-to-head facing off, and then they judged the winner between those two, and it was a a bracket style where the winner moved on. Correct. Yeah. So they just had, you know, they seeded everybody and then basically number one went against number 16 and, you know, on each side and worked down through the bracket until they got to the final four. And then the final four, they made come back the next day and do the same thing again with the call off between, you know, head to head call off between each person in the bracket. And it was a single elimination, which is hard because it's a human judged contest. And so you never really know what the judges are looking for or how they're going to react to your calling that round. And uh, it was it added a lot of pressure just knowing that if you lost one round, you were going home and didn't have a chance to even make it into the finals. Oh, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. And so when, when you're doing those calling competitions, yeah, like you say, it's all judged, um, you know, by, by preference or, you know, by, by what they like to hear by the judges. Um, do you, do you call the same when you're calling for elk or are those more exaggerated calls during those, those calling, uh, championships? No, I call, uh, honestly just exactly the same. So I don't change anything between my stage calling and my, my elk calling. Uh, you know, there's, there's always the psychological part of, what does a human think sounds good versus, you know, what does, what's going to convince an elk? But ultimately, at the end of the day, in the contest, you know, the judges are looking for the caller who sounds the most like an elk. And so I just go out there and do the, the same calling I would do if I was hunting. Oh, how cool. Well, yeah, uh, you're definitely an authority on calling. And you have that um, that that elk website that I think such a great resource for, for new hunters and for experienced hunters, the Elk 101. Um, you guys have really created a place for great content there. Totally. And, and honestly, that's how it started. It was just a, just a hangout. You know, it was kind of a hobby and we never – I never intended for it to turn into what it's turned into. But it's uh, – you know, it's fun. It's a passion we have. And now to be able to basically turn a passion into a full-time living and uh, actually making some income on it, it's it's definitely a pretty awesome thing. 
uh, that is awesome. Yeah, to be able to monetize it like that, and it just takes a uh, it takes years of grinding at it. Like nothing comes easier, nothing comes quick, and especially not in the hunting industry. You know, maybe a few guys are, are flashes in the pants, but it just seems to me like it's uh, that that long term hard work that that eventually you just kind of get uh, more and more opportunity, and you keep kind of making a little bit more out of it. Is that how it's gone for you? Absolutely. You know, with social media and stuff. It's a lot easier for people to promote, you know, whether it's self-promotion or promoting a business or a product or anything. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, like you said, you'll see people come and go. But that long-term grind, you know, that's really what it takes to, to kind of be established and be able to hold on. Like you said, especially in the hunting industry on the business side, it's it's tough. Yes, um, tough to even get your foot in the door, much less uh, make a little bit off of it. But uh, yeah, good on you. Um, uh, it takes a lot of hard work and dedication, and and you definitely have that. And I that site, I checked it out since we last talked, and yeah, it's such a great resource as you take hunters from start to finish how to hunt elk on public lands, how to how to find them, what to what to look for, and then tactics and techniques and calling, and it it goes through the whole the whole gamut, which is really cool to see yeah now we've been doing it now i think nine years ago we started it and so over the course of nine years you know there for a while we we're doing an article every week and so like you said just that amount of content there's hundreds of pages of content uh on any topic you can imagine and probably a lot you wouldn't even <laughs> imagine uh all focused on increasing success for an elk country oh, how cool um, well, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about, the authority on elk hunting. Um, my my listeners, uh, they'd be embarrassed or they'd uh, be disappointed if I didn't ask you about elk hunting. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk <laughs> to you about it. Um, so I, I want to – like I um, this ties to me this season as I'm trying to learn some new areas and find some new places to elk hunt as I've just kind of – you know, I like the places that I've elk hunted over the years, but us as humans, we love to explore and we love to see new places and chase new bulls and different habitats. So I'm kind of going to some new locations this year. So I was thinking we could just start from scratch, like um, how to find good elk units and kind of what you look for when you're looking for a good elk unit. Totally. Yeah, no, it's, you know, and there's a, there's a learning curve with that. I was actually just talking to a guy this morning, and and uh, he said, do you hunt the same area every year? And I said, you know, honestly, we've got to the point where we love going to new areas. And, and like you said, just part of it's the adventure, part of it's the challenge, and there's just some incredible country out there that sometimes we get stuck in a rut hunting the, the same exact areas year after year, and we miss out on, you know, whether we find something better or just something different, but... Uh, I think the first thing I do is, you know, get an idea of of uh, what state I want to go to, you know, kind of that broad, hey, do I want to hunt Wyoming, do I want to hunt Colorado, and then narrow it down from there. And, and I just, you know, there's a lot of resources out there to find statistics on a couple key things for me. One of them is overall population or population objective in that unit. Uh, I usually don't want to go to a unit that's severely under objective based on what the fish and game department feels is the holding capacity for elk in that area. Uh, another thing they look for is bull to cow ratio. And I've just found that the higher the bull to cow ratio is, the better hunting we've had during the rut, especially when it comes to calling elk, which is what I really like to do. And then, uh, you know, just looking at, at 
past harvest statistics as far as success rates and uh, age, average age of the, the animals that are killed there and just different things like that. It really kind of, as you start pulling out, and I don't go for the top premier type hunts, you know, where they're 40% success rate and 40 to 100 bull to cow ratios and 400% over objective on population. You know, those are usually limited hunts that are hard to draw. So what I'm looking for just sometimes those sleeper areas that it's like, wow, look at the success rate here, and there aren't very many hunters. The population overall is low, but it seems like the people that go in there and work hard are having a good hunt and, and maybe finding some of the older age class animals. Yeah, there's, um, like you say, there's so many great resources now. The state agencies and, and different states keep, some keep better track uh, of their elk and, and objective and, and bull to cow. And, and some states, uh, you know, keep less tabs on it. But yeah, you're right. There's so many great resources through those and in magazines and such. And then I also look at like the Boone and Crockett and the Pope and Young books, you know, as I, they'll tell you which county they came from. And then you can sort those counties, you know, through the state to find out kind of where the big ones are coming from too, you know, where you've got those, those good genetics as well. Totally. Yeah, and genetics are a huge, huge part of it if, you know, you're looking for the bigger ones. And, you know, we're from Idaho, so I don't know if there's anything in the record books from here, but it, uh, you know, we've, we've got areas with genetics, but for me, it's mostly about getting away from people and getting away from access. And then you find the older age class animals, which usually leads to some of the more mature ones. Yes, yeah, so that is the goal. Uh, mature six point bulls or mature bulls. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I'm not uh, by any means a trophy snob, but I like to see those good genetics, though. You know, it makes me feel like uh, I've got an opportunity to maybe see one of those next level bulls. Totally, and yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm not a trophy snob, but man, you put a big bull in front of me, and I'm gonna get really excited, just like anybody would. The problem is, is I've got a, a, a really itchy trigger finger, and I just like to eat elk, and so I have a hard time holding out or passing up elk. Oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, I love to I love to hunt elk. Like part of the fun is going in and interacting as you do, calling with them. I do a lot of stalking as well, but the fun is hunting them. That's why I love to elk hunt. And so when I see a good six point bull and he's mature, and I, and I've definitely stepped up, you know, to where I I don't, you know, I try to pass on the smaller satellite bulls. But yeah, if I see a mature six point, uh, you know, I'm not adding up the inches. You know, I'm pretty much like, let's go see if we can make something happen on this guy um, absolutely yeah so i'm like you i just love to hunt elk yeah yeah and that's you know and i've had conversations with people and they'll say man you don't have the mule deer bug and and honestly for me it comes down to bugling and oh. if mule deer bugled i'd hunt them as often as i could and if <laughs> you know that's i think that's why it's fun hunting some of the predators and stuff that you can call in and just that i think interaction and being able to fool them into thinking that you're another one of them and getting inside of their head and convincing them to come in closer is is the challenge for me well and the the way you do it uh, with the calling um it's got to be about the most thrilling way to hunt any species so like you say when you're interacting back and forth you get uh, so many, you know, little little dumps of adrenaline, you know, as that bull answers back and your mind starts to wander, go, okay, yeah, he seems fired up. I think we can call this bull in. But uh, it, it's such an exciting way to hunt elk. And, and you've been so successful at it. I, I, I'd love to pick your brain about some of the tactics you use. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so it seems to me like um, you're you're still using a lot of bull sounds. Like you're almost trying to you're almost trying to get these bulls into a fight. To where when I used to call a lot, I used to use a lot of cow sounds, and I I know that you use all sounds, but it sure seems like you're keying in on that fight instinct to that bull. Do I have that right, Corey? Absolutely, and you you hit on it right there. And you know my style of calling, I'm very aggressive. Um, you know, we get right in their grill and we get right in their face. And the reason for that is I truly think that the elk react on instinct or on emotion more so than on language. And, you know, when we sit back and we try to really dissect exactly what an elk is saying and exactly what we need to say back to it, that gets complicated. And I am too much of a simple-minded person to get bogged down with complex things i'd get confused and end up being unsuccessful too often so i I keep it really simple and i just really think that when elk respond to a call they're doing it off of emotion and you think about the times that elk have come into calls if they're coming into a cow call it's that desire to breed you know during september if you can convince a bull that you are a cow that is ready to be bred and or even you know that you're a lone cow that bull's going to want to add you to his harem and, and hang out with you for a couple weeks. And similarly, if you're you know trying to get that emotional response from a bugle, really bulls are only they're coming into each other to size each other up and potentially fight to either steal cows or establish dominance. So when the rut kicks, they know which one's stronger and which one's going to get the cows. And so my calling strategies are are centered around that simple fact that the elk are going to respond to my calling based on an emotion. So what I need to do is trip that trigger and kind of get that emotional response in them either to breed or to fight. And when when you're trying to convince a bull that you're a cow, if you're a lone cow and you're lonely, you know, the cow is going to be just as apt to run into the bull. If he bugles, he's, he's kind of trying to call that cow into him and saying, hey, if you're all alone and need somebody to hang out with, you know, come over here and hang out with me for a while. And they're going to be a, a little less likely to just turn and come running right into your cow calls. Now, it obviously happens, and it can be very effective. But like you mentioned, for me, the, the primary focus is trying to get them to fight. And if you can do that, they just their eyes roll back in their head. They lose all control of their senses. They aren't even thinking about danger. They just go rushing in head first, looking for that fight and, you know, dukes up ready to swing. And for a hunter, that's that's kind of the situation we want. So I've just found when I'm when I'm cow calling to bring them in, a lot of times they're coming in a little bit more wary, a little more cautious. They're stopping and looking, and if I can trigger them to to want to fight, you know, they're knocking trees down trying to get in, which I need a, a really dumb elk like that to come and stand in front of me to have an opportunity. <laughs> well, me too. Uh, that makes really good sense, though, Corey. Like you're saying, um, you, you have a higher percentage of, of killing that bull once you get them to commit and come in. And I would I would call in quite a few elk, and that's kind of where I got frustrated is those bulls would come in on such pins and needles, uh, you know, and they'd come in facing me or quartered towards me really looking for that cow. Um, you know, and that's like I wouldn't get the shot all the time. And it was like, oh, I put all this effort to work in on this bull, get them excited. I called him in and then, you know, he busted me because he was came in on pins and needles. And so I like what you're saying that when they they come in on the fight like that and they're coming in to fight another bull that they really, 
more so throw caution into the wind than when they're coming into a cow sound. So, no, I, I like what you're saying. That makes good sense to me. Yeah, and I, I just I really think it's a natural, you know, instinct that's ingrained in them. Just, you know, I, I don't think they can control it. I think that with the testosterone running through them in September, it's just like a human, you know, and you get a human all filled with testosterone and get right in his face and scream at him, he's probably going to be more likely to fight you than – you know, somebody that you're trying to have a conversation and figure out exactly what each other's saying. So I just, I resort to that and and uh, go straight into name calling and insulting and <laughs> try to make him want to fight. Well, then it's kind of reading the mood of the bull, right? And what he responds to and reacts to and kind of... You're almost reading the language and knowing when to when to bugle back, like knowing when to cut them off on a bugle to really get them fired up, and knowing when to kind of ease into it and kind of get them more fired up before you cut them off. But it's all about reading that mood of that bull and what it responds to and kind of what fires them up, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah. And that's you know we're we're very aggressive and probably too aggressive, you know. But I really think that that aggression especially when you're trying to call elk in is important and like you said you have to you have to read their attitude and if you've got a bull that's just a weak bugle that you know he doesn't have cows you see him over on a hillside by himself um he's not interested in company he's he's getting hard to get fired up it's going to take some some work and some massaging to get him ready to fight and on the flip side you know if you get one that he's firing off from a half mile away and he's already working your way then uh, it's going to be a little bit easier. But, yeah, and my, and my strategy for calling is the same regardless. You know, like you say, you just have to read that and apply it maybe at a different time or, or work up to it. But when I ultimately get in and get set up, it that strategy stays the same, whether it's a young bull, a big bull, whether it's fired up, whether it's timid, whether, you know, whatever it is, I approach it the same. Yeah, well, and, and I think um... – I think one of the big mistakes guys make too is is calling and getting that response back from that bull and kind of calling back and forth um, from a distance and you're almost like letting that bull know where you're at and he can keep tabs on you and he feels safe at that distance or even moving away from you and I I think the move is is to to use your your calls to locate those. And then to beeline for those elk and try to get in really tight before you make your setup and before you start to try to call that bull in. Um, and I think, you know, calling tentatively at first until you get in and make that setup and, and have them fired up, but not calling too much. You don't want to sound like a, an entire herd of elk freaking – like a, the goal is not to sound like a 100 elk and try to bring this bull from miles away to come into your party. I think the – you know, at least for me, it's to try to locate them and then move in close and begin to call at them there and almost make them have that fight or flight uh, reaction to you. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think the most important aspect to calling is getting close. And, you know, you hear people say all the time, I called and the bull just bugled and ran, bugled and ran. And like you said, if you're calling from 500 yards away, um, there's a couple things. You know, they have time to process everything. If you're a human being and you're yelling at somebody from 500 yards away or you're just talking to somebody at 500 yards away and you say to them, hey, you know, I really don't like you, they probably aren't going to come running straight at you wanting to fight. But if you get up in somebody's face and catch them off guard and by surprise and start screaming at them and insulting them, there's a chance that they're probably going to take a swing at you. 
and elk are kind of the same way. You know, they, they like their space, and if you get too close and get in that personal bubble and start insulting them, their, their reaction is going to be way different than if you're standing back a long ways just talking timidly to them. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, and that um, I, it almost turns into a combination between calling and spotting and stalking at that <laughs> point, right? Because you have to know when to slow down so you don't bump that herd of elk, but you're trying to get really close to them to make your setup to call that bull in. Absolutely, and <clears throat> we call that shadowing where we actually use some calling and then just get in and spot and stalk. And, you know, a lot of times with those bigger herd bulls, especially later in the rut, they're focused on breeding. They've got cows that are coming into estrus sometimes by the hour, and they're just, they're not going to leave those cows. And so they're very vocal. And if you can get in there with them and just keep moving along and wait for them to make a mistake, that can be a, you know, have a maybe a caller back behind 200 yards or 150 yards, just keeping them talking well, you just slip in and kind of spot and stalk on them. It's kind of a, a good hybrid approach to it. And, you know, obviously we the goal is to call them in because then you have the upper hand. You've, you're set up in a position that you control, in a position that you've chosen to bring that bull in. And if you can get him to commit and come in, that's ideal. But sometimes that's easier said than done. Yes, it can be. It can be a challenge. I, I like your term shadowing. Yeah, I've used uh, coyoting before, but I like yep. shadowing. That's a good one. Yeah, where you just kind of keep moving with the herd and kind of waiting for your chance, waiting for your chance to to make your move or go all in. And um, like you say, you can keep pretty good tabs on them too, vocally. Um, but that can be deceiving as well. Um, you know, they sometimes they bugle facing away from you or it echoes off canyon walls. And I I know I've made more than uh, I've made that mistake more than once where I think that bull is farther away and I kind of rush in and then I rush right into the back of the herd and end up <laughs> blowing them up because I thought they were further. But, uh, yeah, definitely, like keeping with that herd, shadowing them until your chance. And a lot of times, too, their bedroom is a great place to call. <laughs> you mean you would go into their bedding areas and hunt them? <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time. I don't know if it's, you know, white tail mentality or what, but – I absolutely love hunting elk in the middle of the day in their bedding areas. And, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons. First off, in the mornings when they're, when you're, you know, they're very vocal and very active, so you hear a lot more bugling then, but they're usually on the move going from their feeding areas back to their bedding areas. And to catch up to that herd and to get that bull to turn and leave the cows and come down the hill to you, it can be difficult. And, you know, the other thing is you're climbing up the mountain, following them up there, and the wind's going to switch, you know, eventually at some point in the morning. And if you're behind those elk and below them and the wind switches and starts going uphill, you've spent all morning trying to catch up with that elk. And then in a split second, he wins you and it's game over. So I would love to, you know, get on a parallel ridge and just follow them up to their bedding areas and then climb up above them. And once the wind switches and gets stable so it's coming up, drop down in there and, you know, those bulls aren't moving they're territorial. They don't want a competitor in their in their bedroom, and it just seems like our successes have really increased dramatically by hunting them in the middle of the day. Just as far as getting them to commit to a call in, a lot of times all it takes is just one call sequence, and they're up and coming in at a pretty good rate. 
Oh, I like that. Yeah, you, well, you're you're threatening their space in there, especially their their bedding space. But yeah, I'm with you. I love it when they get in their bedroom. I like it when they first get there and they start to really slow down and mingle around, and the bull's up on his feet. But but you're right, middle of the day, that bull get up and check his cows as well and move around the herd. And, and definitely, if another bull's coming in, I can see where he'd really feel threatened. And um, uh, like you say, the first call sequence, he may come in to check you out. Yeah, and you'd mentioned something earlier, you know, about locating with the bugle and then not making very many calls as you go in there. We actually take that to an extreme and don't make any calls. So once we get them located, we'll move in as close as we can possibly get, absolutely silent, just so we have that full element of surprise so that, you know, the the calling strategy I use is really simple. I give them a cow call once I'm set up, the bull responds, and as soon as he responds, I just hammer him with a really aggressive challenge bugle. And... When you can get in close and you have that element of surprise, that bull hears that cow call and, you know, his first reaction is just to respond to it in some way. And when he does that, he's not anticipating that there's a bull right there. He's talking to this cow that's just a a lonely cow. And before he gets done hitting on her, you know, we challenge him and call him every name we can and insult him. And that whole fight or flight thing just seems to trigger and when you get into that bedding area, it seems to just be magnified that much more because they just really <laughs> don't like company that close to their cows, especially insulting them. Oh, that um, I like that sequence, that cow call, and then as soon as he responds, you cut him off instantly. That's that's just got to infuriate him. <laughs> you just uh, it's got to make those bulls so mad a lot of the times. I would think where they just come rushing in. Uh, that sure sounds like an exciting way to call them. It is, you know, and you can you can call elk from distance, and you can bugle them, you can cow call them, but man, when they just when that trigger trips for them to fight, they do. They'll knock trees over coming in, and they'll be slobbering. Their eyes will be rolled back, and they just. They've lost all senses and they just want to come in and fight. It's a just a natural reaction. And yeah, for a hunter to be sitting there watching that unfolding, you know, you got a bow in your hand and here comes the elk 150 yards away storming off the hill. And especially if you can have a partner, you know, as a caller 50 or 60 yards behind you, it's just, you know, what's going to happen. And of course, there's still a hundred other things that can and usually do go wrong, but just getting that elk to commit to that calling setup is is a huge step towards being successful. Well, um, I definitely got off topic, but I knew I would. I knew I was going to get into calling before we ever got through finding elk areas, but uh, I just had to. Uh, but no, that is such great information, Corey. Uh, yeah, uh, just in, in not making a sound as you move in, no sounds. And so you really get the element of surprise on them, too. So you're not letting them know that you're approaching them or that you're moving in. You, you just get inside that close yardage, which uh, it probably varies. But uh, what would you say, like a couple hundred yards or something like that? Yeah, it, it really varies on you know the terrain and everything. If you're in wide open stuff, sometimes you can't get closer than 300 yards and on the flip side, if you're in really brushy stuff, you know, you get inside 200 yards and you start making noise. And so you just have to really judge it that just get as close as you absolutely can. Sometimes I've got within 80 yards of them. And, man, when you set up that close, it's kind of like have your bow drawn before you even make the first call because it can happen fast. <laughs> but uh, I, ideally, I would say that 150-yard range is kind of what I'm shooting for. And, you know, 150 to 250 seems to be pretty pretty good okay um so 
So back to finding elk, if we could circle back to that, because I, uh, <laughs> I did get off topic. I'm sure we'll get back into calling as there's so much, uh, so much great information to talk about there. But locating more elk. So we've, we've picked our state, and uh, now we've, we've broken it down into units, and we're looking at population of elk. And I'm like you, even if big elk come from there, um, I, I want to see good populations of elk before I'll cl- commit my time in there because elk roam so much country that um, it, it's really easy to go and cover a bunch of country and not see or hear an elk for the day. Um, and so I just want to want to put all the odds in my favor and, and hunt a place that has good populations. And then uh, where do you go from there? Where do you start looking at, at maps and studying the kind of the mountains and how they lay out and national forest and wilderness and, and access points? Is that what you start looking at? Yeah, even, you know, I, I don't get too, I, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's hard to kind of quantify it all, but yeah, so I'll, I'll narrow down to a specific unit based on stats. Um, then it might be a phone call to a biologist just to say, hey, within this unit, I'm looking at hunting here. What can you tell me about this mountain range versus this one? You know, just an idea of hunting pressure, uh, idea of elk numbers. You know, we've hunted some units where, it's a vast unit, but 90% of the elk in that unit are concentrated on one mountain range. Uh, so, you know, pick out a spot over in the southeast corner of that unit where there absolutely just aren't elk, even if it looks like elk country, uh, you know, it'd be a waste of time. So I try to just collect some intel, just some general, you know, a lot of times I'll have people say, well, I called the fishing game department and they weren't helpful at all. You know, they were very vague. And I found that if you ask vague questions, you're going to get vague answers. And the more detailed questions you can ask about, hey, what kind of pressure does it get at this trailhead? I'm thinking about going and hunting there. Have you been there during season? You know, are there eight horse trailers there? Or is it vacant during September? Just asking them very detailed questions to help narrow down the area a little bit more, uh, maybe into a, a sub area within the unit. And then from there, once I've identified kind of that sub area, I usually get on Google Earth and it just, you know, something that gives me a 3D look and allows me to find the four features that I think are, are probably the most important for locating a hunting area. And that's number one, north facing slopes. So I'm looking for just the heavy timbered north facing slopes where an elk's going to be most likely to bed during September. Uh, it's cooler on that north facing slope. It's thicker. They're safer. It's kind of their sanctuary where they're just going to feel safe to bed. So I'm identifying all the north-facing slopes. Uh, from there, I'm looking at feed sources that are close to it. So on you know, mapping service, I'm looking for something like an open ridge or a clear cut or a meadow where there's just going to be some tender green grass or you know, good feed for them. I'm looking for water. And the nice thing on Google Earth, you can go in and pick the date for the imagery that's displayed. So I'll just find one from the last couple of years that was taken in September and look at it and say, okay, there's water here. You know, there's green. You can just tell those lush green draws. And I can already start envisioning wallows in those draws. And there's a ridge up here with some feed on it. And there's a meadow down at the bottom where they can spend the night rutting and feeding and bedded down. And then there's a north-facing slope just over the ridge. And pretty soon those three areas start to – you can triangulate those three items and really, when you're looking at a sub area like that, there's only going to be probably five or six areas that kind of jump out and say they have all three of these things in close proximity to each other. And then the fourth thing I add in is it has to be at least a mile away from a road. And if I can find those four things, especially with the food, water, and bedding close to each other, um, you know, I 
it usually narrows it down pretty quickly to to a spot within the unit that I want to go and check out. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great to to get your insight on elk units like that. It it does take experience looking at them and and proving those units right or wrong, but that definitely gives you a good starting points and good game plans, you know. And and like you say, four or five different places that you have to check out, you know, at least a couple of those are going to hold elk usually. Um, I really like the the north facing timber. That's something that I haven't looked at a lot, and so. You know, you, uh, that's the cover that the elk use, and of course they like benches on that north side and that thick cover. Uh, but that's something that I haven't really looked at on Google Earth too much when I'm looking at elk spots. So uh, I'm definitely going to key into that more. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just like you said, just their sanctuary. Like, um, and, and as you said it, and as you were describing it, I was thinking, yeah, like how many times have I got into to elk on the north side, and that's almost always where they seem to bed. Um, they love feeding those south sides and feeding those meadows and open ridges like you're talking about, um, but there just isn't enough food in those north sides and that thick cover. They use that for bedding. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and, and elk... They need water every day, if not twice a day. And so yeah. water is so important. And a lot of these mountain ranges, especially like in, in Colorado and, and Wyoming, a lot of them are grass tops where, you know, and usually that's where a lot of the mule deer like to live is up on the grass tops. But, but elk can't live that high or they can't live – they've got to live where there is water. And they can't live up that high. They can't live at twelve and 13,000 feet in Colorado, especially during the early season and then above 10 in Wyoming. But but they've got to have water there, and so that's that's such another key element that you mentioned. Definitely, yep. Mm -hmm. And so um, I also, like you say, changing the dates on Google Earth, I think that's <laughs> an important one. Like that's a really good tip because it, it looks totally different. You know, in the March or April, it may look all green and lush, or I guess that would be June in the high country, would look really lush and green, everything. But as you go later – you, you start to find where the the lusher, greener grass is in those bottoms and such, and you can kind of read where the water is, and you can also read where the better food is and see where the where the grass gets burned off on south facers. And a lot of times, those meadows are almost better on a north facer, like, you know, in that September season, I've found. And it's, you know, I don't know if Google Earth, if, if you, when you open it up and go there, if it automatically assigns, you know, a recent imagery from the same month that you're looking at it. I, I don't know how that works, but I do know that, like you said, it changes drastically from June to September on what those images look like. And forever, I just went into whatever the standard default image that came up was and didn't realize you could change them. And so I'm looking, like you say, and it's like, there's green everywhere. This draw's got green, this draw's got green. And then I go there in hunting season and, you know, the first instinct is, well, this must be a really dry year because I'm not seeing water like I anticipated and all these spots that I put on my GPS that I thought were going to be sure wallows are, are dry. And once I found that, it, you know, you can find the green spots in September on Google Earth and then you know pretty certainly that there's going to be water there during season. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I like to also, I like to see how the mountains lay out and see how I'm going to move through them. I, I love to look at big drainages, you know, where I, I'm looking or listening to a lot of country in there, and then I'll, I'll work that big drainage by, by working a ridge, you know, off one side where I can kind of glass into it or call down into it. Do you, do you look at things the same way as how you're going to move through country and how you're going to hunt it? 
Yeah, for sure. You know, we'll look like you say and just find a, a big ridge system and say, okay, if we get on this ridge, we can hike up to here and there's seven or eight you know, drainages that come off of that ridge system, we can call down into both sides as we're going up there. And so we're really looking for uh, the ways that we can minimize how far we have to go while maximizing how much actual area we can cover with the location bugle. And so, yeah, Google Earth is super helpful in that, that you can almost see the routes that you want to walk and have a game plan for when you get there. And we're talking all of this stuff we've talked about for locating elk. We haven't even stepped foot in the actual unit yet. You know, we're doing all of this remotely. And then if you are able to step foot in that unit, you're really quickly able to confirm whether, you know, you, you can verify whether the things that you've researched and think you saw are actually there. And, uh, you know, you can look for some sign that will indicate that it's going to be a good place to hunt in September. Yeah, so that is the next step. You're right. So, um, okay, we've we've picked out our unit. We've we've narrowed down which mountain ranges we liked. We've got four or five drainages that we've picked out. We know how we're going to hunt them and what we're going to look at. And, and now it's just proofing all your research that you've done. And it's it's not a hundred percent for any of us. No matter how long you've elk hunted, sometimes you'll pick out a spot on the map and it looks so good, and you get in there and there aren't any elk in there. And and I think the deal is too is elk work a circuit of country. You know that. They, they may be working 20 miles worth of country or 20 square miles worth of country or maybe a little bit less than that. But it, even though you found a good elk spot, it doesn't mean they're, the elk are going to be there all the time. They're there for you know a, a handful of days or maybe during a week in September, and then they kind of move on. Do you find that as well, is that even though you're finding and turning up these good elk spots, it doesn't mean that there's going to be elk in there all the time? Absolutely. And, and for me... You know, I think we all want to, if we're going to set trail cameras, we want to see big bulls on our trail camera. But the problem is, is where the bulls are in the summer usually isn't where they're going to rut. So what I'm looking for, if I am on the ground, I want to find cows during the summer because that's what the bulls are going to be looking for in September. And the cows really typically don't move too far from where they have their calves to where the rutting takes place. So if I am putting out trail cameras, I'm going to try to, you know, get big groups of cows. The more cows I can find, the better chances that there's going to be more bulls coming in there, which creates competition, which makes it easier to call them in. Um, you know, I'm just looking for signs of previous rut. If I'm finding a bunch of rubs and old wallows and everything in the summer, elk usually going to come back and rut in the same area. So I'm looking for some of those things that are going to indicate, that, hey, this is a rutting area. Even if I'm not seeing necessarily a lot of elk or not seeing any bulls, you know, first thing in the morning as I'm glassing, I'm totally okay with that if I can find cows. And then, like you said, especially in these these units where there's wolves and other, you know, heavy predation, elk move. And I've seen, you know, elk do these great big circuits just to stay in front of the wolves or just to continually be moving so that, you know, the wolves aren't able to just come in and hone in on them and, and have a field day, which, you know, a lot of these the states that have wolves now have changed elk hunting and elk calling, and, and part of it is just how you're able to find the elk because they are moving so much. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So that's um, that's a good tip, yeah, because um, bulls, that's what I find too, is that bulls don't live um, in the summertime where they rut, and so scouting for good bulls uh, it doesn't really work because where you find them is where, you know, then they move down during September and rut with those cows. But that was good information that you look for cows. So if you're seeing good elk numbers, you've got good confidence that that place is going to hunt pretty good during September. 
Yeah, if I can find cows from July 4th through August 15th, I'm going to focus on that specific area because I'm pretty certain, you know, bulls will roam 15 to 30 miles or even more looking for cows from their summer range. And the cows typically, once they get up and start having their calves in June, they typically don't move a whole lot from there. Uh, they've got good lush feed. They've got security for their calves. And that's usually pretty close to where the bulls are going to come find them during the rut. Boy, that's a great tip, Corey. Um, yeah, I'm going to put that into use. And and I'm like you. I also I get into those areas. And boots to ground is so important. Like it just um, it you can actually put all your research to work, and you you actually see what it looks like in in real time with standing there, you know. And so you get to see how you'll hunt it. And then like you, I look for scrapes. And you also want to make sure on scrapes that you're finding ones from the rut and not from when they're shedding their horns. Usually their shed zones are a little bit lower, and uh, you usually don't find as many wallows in there. So the wallows, the scrapes, rutting activity, sign and trails and things of that nature. And, and usually that gives me a pretty good idea that those elk are going to be there and rut again, like you said. So that's what I try to look for when I'm when I'm scouting elk areas. Absolutely. And the other thing is it's nice to to get there before season because I don't know how many years I've been using Google Earth, but it still amazes me every time how much steeper the country really is than how it looks on Google Earth. And <laughs> it's it's frustrating to show up and think, yeah, we're going to hike to the top of this mountain here on day one, and you get there and realize that it's just vertical for four miles and didn't realize it on Google Earth. So getting there and, and having a realistic view of what it looks like is helpful as well. Yeah, uh, that's so funny. Yeah, I, I have, the country always looks so small off Google Earth. I just figure <laughs> out how I'm going to hunt the entire mountain range. And so then I get in there and I, I start actually walking around and it takes me twice or three times as long to go as far as I thought I could. You know, it's so funny. Yeah, you measure a, a distance from where you're going to park to where you want to hunt. And you're like, okay, three miles, I can be there in an hour and 10 minutes. And about noon, you're looking at your watch and trying to figure out how come it's taking you so long to get there. And <laughs> you're climbing through deadfall yeah. or whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. That's so funny. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, but yeah, that scouting is key. And then, and then I do a lot of my scouting like uh, in real time during hunting season. I I just I cover a lot of ground in September trying to find elk and trying to find mature bulls. Um, do you guys do the same thing where you're covering? Uh, miles every single day in different directions trying to find the elk? Definitely. Yeah, and that's, you know, like you said, my, I, I always say that the best scouting is done with a bugle tube. And if there's a, a new area that we're thinking about maybe applying for for a controlled hunt or checking out the next year, if I can sacrifice one or two days during September and go and actually call in there and see what the elk are doing and try to, you know, just – see what the rutting activity is like and everything, that is so key and so vital to be able to do that because, you know, things do change from June to September sometimes. And if I can uh, if I can scout a new area during season for the next season, that's great. And then, like you said, locating elk is just all about being mobile and hiking. And for us, we're getting up before daylight. We're hitting the trailhead or the ridge, and then we will hike all day long and usually cover – 10 to 14 miles a day in, you know, fairly rough country with a lot of elevation gain and loss, uh, just trying to locate elk. And I'll walk by 100 elk that aren't bugling just to find that one that is bugling and is ready to call in that day. Oh, um, that's interesting. So 
uh, yeah, so you like calling bulls and you're committed to it and you know it works because you've killed a bunch of mature bulls doing it. And so that's your style of hunting and you believe in it wholeheartedly. And so you'll actually walk by elk in a big bull if he's non-responsive or not calling, looking for an elk that will respond to your calls. Uh, it depends on how big the bull is, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are some elk I won't walk by, but yeah, for the most part, we're – we're living and dying by the bugle tube. And if we can't find an elk that's willing to bugle and that's somewhat vocal, we're going to have a tough time calling elk in. So it's all about staying mobile and covering a lot of country to find that elk that on that day is is ready to go. Okay. Well, in, in that rut, it comes in such peaks and valleys. I'll always hear people saying, oh, the rut's not started yet, or oh, the <laughs> rut's really going, or oh, the rut's over with. But it, it's peaks and valleys throughout from September 5th to October 15th, and, and it can be going, you know, it can be going like wildfire one day with 10 bulls screaming, and then you go in there the next day and you'll watch a lone bull feeding up on a ridge and you won't hear hear another elk or hear a peep out of them. And so, you know, it, it's really determined by those cows coming into estrus, and just because bulls aren't bugling in, in one part of the valley doesn't mean that five miles away they could, they could be going crazy. So to me, it just seems... Seems like peaks and valleys, and I just have to keep hunting hard. And I don't, I don't uh, look into it too much. You know, whether they were rutting hard that day. I mean, I guess I always pay attention to it, but um, I, I try not to let it discourage me, or I, I try not to to call it before I get out there and see what they're doing, because every day is different during the elk rut. It is, and, and I just that's part of the adventure. I think is just finding out what's over the next ridge. And we have a saying that you know, on those tough days. It only takes one. So we just got to keep going and find that one. And it might be right over the next ridge. It might be three days later, you know, several drainages over. But we're just covering as much country as we can to find that one bull at a time. And, you know, it's really nice when you get in a drainage and there's six bulls and you know that you can go from one to the next when you mess up and and uh, have more opportunities. But really, we're just we're trying to find that bull that's ready to be called in because it's going to make us more efficient. If we can find the bull that's ready to go, we can spend our time there finding him and call him in and uh, create a good opportunity out of that. Or we can spend a lot of time trying to make the elk come into us when they aren't ready to. And I just think if we can find that right one on the right day, uh, our chances of calling him in and then of, of killing him are definitely much higher. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, and it, it sounds like you're really looking for spots. So we, we touched on pressure a couple times, but it, it sounds like for calling, you want to find the least pressured elk that you can you can get. And so you're looking for a lot of secluded drainages, and you say a mile away from a road, but you're looking you're looking for places where people aren't getting to and, and aren't calling at those elk a lot. Do I have that right, Corey? Absolutely. Yeah, the more times an elk hears a bugle and – simultaneously wins a hunter, you know, smells a hunter, they just become more call shy and they're more wary the next time. And it takes that much more to fool them. And if I can get back in an area where no other hunters have called to the elk for the last three weeks, I just, you know, I really feel those elk are going to be more prone to responding and, and coming in to those calls than if they'd been pressured and got their nose full of human scent a couple times. Well, yeah, I notice um, I spot and stalk a lot for him too, and I um, 
I noticed that uh, hunting high-pressure elk, they're like hunting a different species. <laughs> you know, they they know humans are after them, and they're really looking out for you, you know, to where hunting an unpressured elk. I, I mean, it, it is. It's like hunting different species when you're spot and stalking. And so, you know, that's where a lot of my change is coming from, too, is I've hunted some some higher-pressure units that, that have a ton of elk in them and a ton of mature bulls, and it's been really fun. And it seems like, I you know, every year I can turn up a good six-point and get an arrow in them, and we can make it through the winter you know as far as as eating elk for the the winter but um yeah i just notice a difference in those elk by the pressure they've had put on them and so i want to get back to my my wilderness roots and chasing some of these elk that are that are unpressured i think i'm i'm gonna have a better chance at once i find the bull i want killing that bull absolutely and just the experience of it you know when you're continually bumping into other hunters or other hunters are bugling down on top of you when you're set up calling an elk or you know, you're chasing elk that you know have just been hunted and hunted and hunted. It's a completely different experience when you get into an area and you know you're the only one. You know the elk are, are undisturbed and and uh, it just it changes the overall experience. Not just, you know, it increases success for sure and opportunities, but it just, I, I just, I don't know. There, there's just something awesome about knowing that you're the only one in there and, and chasing those elk. Oh, you're right. There's no feeling like it. And, um, you know, even in those high-pressure units, elk are where humans aren't. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to see a high-pressure unit, and then you've got to find those drainages or those places where humans aren't getting to, and then those things are full of elk, you know. And so it can be really uh, productive and conducive to killing one doing that, but it, it's the same theory whether it's high-pressure or it's low-pressure. It's those elk are where humans are. They're where they're not getting pressured, and they're not getting bumped, and they're not getting bothered. They they want to they want to go through that elk, but they they really dislike human pressure, and and that's why uh, elk are so fun to hunt too. But they when you bump an elk, um, they don't just relocate over the next mountain or into secondary living. It's like they change counties. <laughs> Boy, elk can sure cover country, can't they? After you spook them, they can, and they can do it in a hurry. We've hunted some steep canyon country before, where you can see them, you know, go down the canyon and up the other side, and they do it in a matter of two to three minutes and six hours later we're still trying to make it up the other side it's like how in the world can they cover so much country so effortlessly (laughs) they can seems unfair (laughs) (laughs) oh it, it almost is you know if uh yeah if we didn't um you know, humans didn't have intelligence on our side and in, in, in endurance. I think we'd, we'd be out of the game for sure. But, yeah, they, you're right. It is uh, so impressive the way those things can move country as you, you'll watch them spook out of country. And just like you say, you'll watch them go down one ridge and up over the next and then see them over the next one, which, which would take us hours and hours to cover that distance. So, yeah, they're they're pretty impressive to watch in the mountains. They they say they originated on the prairie, but boy, it sure seems like they're built for the <laughs> they mountains. They were made for the mountains. <laughs> to go uphill. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they love to walk uphill too. Boy, elk will just go and go and go uphill. It just doesn't even seem to slow them down or bother them. No. And then you put one quarter of an elk on our back and we can barely muster up a hill. So just makes you realize how... <laughs> how impressive of an animal they are. And I think that's just, you know, everything about an elk just culminates into the, just the dream hunt, just the country they live in, the fact that they're vocal and their vocalization is incredibly beautiful and just uh, how magnificent of an animal they are. It's uh, all of those things 
contribute to a great challenge, but I think that's what makes it so rewarding at the end of the hunt. Yeah, absolutely. They're so iconic, and those uh, they're so majestic. And then, I mean, you're, you're hunting one of the largest deer species. I mean, those horns, when they're going 50, 60 inches over their head and these huge spreads, I mean, um, uh, you, you've got to have absolute ice water running through your veins to keep calm and to be able to make your shot. But that's part of the fun. Uh, they have to be the most exciting animal to hunt with a bow and arrow, especially during the rut like that. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, is it uh, sometimes tough to keep your composure and make that shot on an elk? And so um, I, I know for me, of course, you got to – you, you don't look at the horns, and on an elk, um, you have to make a perfect shot. They're a big animal, but you have to get lungs, heart, and liver on those things, and so you really got to pick your spot when you're shooting at elk, and um, you know, another thing that I've done is I just never try to force an arrow in there. Like I'm always trying to wait for the right angle, I'm trying to wait for the right shot, and I'm not trying to force it in a bunch of limbs or a bunch of willows or anything like that. But, uh, but I know, you know, calling elk is one thing, and then you have to keep your composure and, and then actually place a good arrow in them. And that's uh, it, it's easier said than done. When you're in that moment, boy, is that adrenaline filled. It is, yeah. And that's, you know, you, you keyed in on something there that they're, they're a big animal. So I think a lot of times, you know, I've hunted with people before that pull out their bow and they shoot at 20 yards and they hit a pie plate and they say, well, the vitals on an elk is way bigger than a pie plate. I'm good to go. But even with those big vitals, elk are such a tough animal that, like you said, if the shot's not placed right, there's a really good chance you're going to lose that animal. And so it's so critical to, to be confident in your shot and to take a good shot so that when you do actually get that opportunity, you aren't left with disappointment for the next 11 months. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, it's the worst, and it's not worth it to even gamble your season on it when you can just wait a few more seconds and he may offer that correct angle or that correct shot. But, yeah, you just got to keep your composure there. You're so excited, and you finally got a bull to come in or you're in range, but just be patient there and wait for your shot and, and, and put one right in the center of the vitals. And also stay away from that elk shoulder. Like, um, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, I'm only a 27-inch draw. I shoot a heavy arrow. I get great penetration and a lot of pass-throughs on elk, but um, I tell you, I do not get through that shoulder, and so I try to stay a good three, four inches off my aiming point off that shoulder um, just to make sure I I don't hit that shoulder. Yeah, no, and the just knowing the anatomy of the elk and where those bones actually lie, you know, the you've got that V right there behind the shoulder that actually extends up towards the neck a little bit, and you know, you see the crease come down, and you think, well, that must all be shoulder bone there, but understanding the anatomy is so important to knowing where to aim and and making a good shot and we actually dissected an elk a couple of years ago for part of the university of elk hunting uh, the online course that we did and dissected it and took measurements and showed you know pictures and then we actually had diagrams uh, designed around those pictures and those measurements so it was a really accurate representation of where the leg bones are where the rib bones are where the shoulder blade comes across where that you know, leg bone meets the shoulder blade, and it's just so important to to understand that so that you can, like you said, pick a spot and have the most, uh, the wide degree of error there. So that if you do miss by three or four inches, you're still well within where you need to be. Yes, um, that's so interesting, Corey. That, that had to be... Um... Uh, such a uh, educational process of being able to dissect that bull and see exactly, 
you know, where all those bones went and where the, the actual center of that vital is. And so when you're aiming at an elk, where do you try to put that arrow? Are you halfway up the body, a third up the body, or, or where's your perfect placement of an arrow? Halfway up the body, right in the crease. <clears throat> so if you're in the crease, halfway up the body, that gives you about five inches above. It gives you about five or six inches to the left. Uh, it probably gives you seven or eight inches to the right and five or six inches down where, you know, you can miss your mark and still hit a solid lung. Um, so, yeah, right at that halfway up, maybe an inch behind the crease there, you know, that straight line that runs up from the brisket up to the shoulder. Yes. And that just... Yeah, that's, yeah, I'd say that's where I'm at too, is halfway up. I'd say I'm probably a little farther back than what you described just because I try to stay away from that shoulder. Yep. But but there too, you don't, you definitely don't want to be too far back on a bull. I mean, uh, the liver will kill them. Double lung is even better, uh, but you definitely don't want to be any further back than that. So yeah, you definitely, you, you don't want to aim too far back on them either. Well, and just, you know, understanding where the vitals lie and how the lungs, you know, the lungs and the heart, the heart sits down on the bottom there, but then the lungs angle up as you go back. So if you're six or seven inches behind the crease on the shoulder, but you're at that third, you know, one third point up from the bottom, there's a chance you'll miss the lungs. You know, and a lot of people will say, I shot it right. Perfect heart shot right there. And just being five or six inches back behind that point can uh, turn your day into a long tracking job and potentially not finding an elk. So just, yeah, it's so important to, to understand where the vitals lay, where the bone structure lays, and then kind of find that center mass of where you've got the largest degree of potentially making an error and still coming out with a good shot. That's exactly how I look at it too, Corey, is that that, that uh, margin of error. So you can miss to the left, miss to the right, miss high, miss low, and you still get that bull. That's the spot I'm trying to aim at too. Yep. And honestly, yep. the, the project of dissecting the elk started from analyzing the frontal shot. And, you know, people always say, well, you've got to hit something the size of a golf ball or a tennis ball to be able to get in there. And so, you know, we, we started with the dissecting the elk and measuring distance between the shoulder bones, the actual opening, the thoracic opening at the front of the rib cage and showing where all of the vitals run through. You know, you've got veins and arteries that run right through that opening and just showing that so that people can either choose to or choose not to make that shot. But I think being educated on that anatomy is so important, important regardless of, of what shot you're going to take. Oh, that is important. Yeah. And so that front shot as a bow hunter, um, it is a lethal shot. When you hit the spot, they don't go anywhere, whether it's a, a deer, an elk, an antelope, whatever it is. Um, but, but it is a smaller spot to aim at. And I don't, you know, not like a tennis ball, like we're saying. So, uh, but, but you do have to be precise with your arrow. It's, it's got a seat in between there and in the front. So how big did you find that, that spot was that you're shooting at a front of an arrow? That's uh, about eight inches by 10 inches. And if you hit in that area, and again, you know, angles are important. Same with the quartering two or quartering away shot angles change, the actual target that you've you've got to hit but on a straight on frontal shot it's about eight inches wide and ten inches tall that if you put an arrow in that spot uh, there's really no way it can't kill that elk just because of the the massive you know amount of you got the carotid artery in there you've got just a ton of stuff going on in addition to the lungs the heart the liver um, I shot an elk in Wyoming a couple years ago frontal and it went through, it took out all of those arteries and veins, you know, in the neck, 
and then got in, took out the lungs, took out the top of the heart, hit the liver, went back and actually hit the femoral artery in the back hip. And, uh, you know, I mean, that elk, you hit every single vital on that elk, and he was down in about eight seconds. I bet. What a lethal shot. Yeah, I, my rule of thumb is I try to have him a little bit closer, like if I'm if I'm going to take that shot. Just just because elk are so big and I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want to ruin my entire season for it. But it, it's good to have the, the education and the knowledge about where to put that arrow in there. And, and it is a lethal shot, like you're saying. I just try to have him a little bit closer if I'm going to take it. And, and especially, like you say, the angles can play a part in that too. Like a, a straight-on front shot is different than a quartering towards you shot. And a, a quartering towards you shot, you know, you're trying to slide it right by the, right on the inside of that shoulder and that can be a pretty tough shot to make where there isn't a lot of room for error so you just like you say learn the anatomy have complete confidence in in your shot and your equipment and and that shot will kill an elk totally and by the way that shot was six yards and i i agree that that's a a shot for closer distances than like you say it's a smaller target and so you aren't going to be shooting 40 and 50 yards frontal on an elk and hoping to have a good outcome I think it's important to to visualize where you want your arrow to end up, not the impact point. And when you start doing that and looking and saying, okay, his lungs and heart are right there, if he's quartering to you pretty sharp, like you said, that leg bone and shoulder bone are actually covering where you want your arrow to end up. And if you just shoot at that aiming point like you would if he was straight on, you aren't even going to penetrate that body cavity. And so understanding the anatomy, knowing where you want your arrow to end up, and then choosing an aiming point based on that is is the recipe for a good shot. Yeah, uh, six yards, that's dang near self-defense, That's pretty <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I shot uh, I shot one bull that way, front on, that, yeah, was, uh, I, he he was uh, six at the farthest, you know. He was just a couple steps. I I was kneeling down there, you know, and he, he came right up over the rise right where I was, and I was able to draw when I saw his horns coming and walked up over the deal. And, yeah, it was, it was like that same yardage, four, five, six yards, somewhere right in there, and put one right in the front. And, yeah, he, they don't go anywhere when you hit them right that no, way they don't yep but and then um also so you know so you've made that shot on the elk the 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 job isn't done there those elk are so big and so tough and they can lose so much blood that even with a good shot a lot of times you got to be pretty good at blood trailing those elk too and so right after you make the shot don't get too excited like stay right where you're at uh, stay quiet or you know maybe call to them but um, wherever that bull goes, make sure that you pay attention the last spot you saw that bull. Which direction was he headed? Where was he headed out? Because sometimes it takes him 100 yards or more to start bleeding real well. Absolutely, yeah, and you nailed it right there. Is, you know, don't overdo the calling because that just, you know, if you start just going crazy with bugling over and over and over and all these excited cow calls, you know, that just makes them more nervous and want makes them want to get out of there faster just a couple calls just to settle them down let them know that hey it's just an elk here don't know what happened but why are you scared you know slow them down because a lot of times if you can get them to slow down and stop at 100 yards they'll bed down right there and then if you can slip out and just you know stay back and stay quiet for 30 minutes that's sometimes all it takes and you know we're talking a less than ideal shot but once you bump them if you get all excited and they realize there's danger there and you start talking or let out a war hoop or something, those things will run for miles sometimes just on adrenaline. And like you say, if it's a questionable blood trailing or, you know, the shot's not leaving a lot of blood, it can be really difficult to recover that animal. So, 
extremely difficult. Yeah, they're so tough and so... Yeah, you pay attention to where they go. Make sure you're staying quiet. Don't try to run over the ridge and see them or see where they're going to or think that they drop. Just hold still. Just be quiet. Let that time pass, especially on an elk. They're they're so big and so strong. And like you say, if you jump them, it could be game over. You could never find that bull. And then, you know, I always try to find the the blood trail. I never get in front of my sign or get in front of my blood trail. Like, I, I know that my blood trail is going to lead to that elk, and I followed so many of them over the years i know that they zigzag and go this way and that way and so i try to get a direction of that bull but i i also i I read that sign as i go and i may have my buddy behind me stand at last blood i try not to step in the tracks i try not to step in the blood and then you know if it if it gets the blood trail gets real skinny i'll mark each blood drop you know with a, a vertical stick or with my buddy standing there until we find the next blood and then i just keep working that blood trail slowly but surely the blood trail will lead to the bull. Totally. And we use flagging ribbon for the, the same purpose. And a lot of times, you know, you'll, like you say, if you're having troubles finding blood and it's 100 yards between drops of blood or something, we'll hang a flagging ribbon everywhere we see blood. And then we can look back up the hill 200, 300 yards sometimes and kind of get a line. So, okay, he's moving in a straight line here. And we can look ahead and say, ah, oh, there's a drop there. I bet he's going to that north face there. There's probably water up there. And if we do run out of blood, then it gives us ideas of where we can go and start gritting and and looking for it. But, yeah, I, I really think that being a good tracker and a good blood trailer is a, a key component to success because elk are tough animals, and not every time will they drop in sight. And even with a good shot, sometimes you have to track them for a half mile. And if you aren't good at that and, and tracking them and following the blood trail, uh, they're probably going to end up dead, but you might not find them until it's too late. Well, and, and even a good shot, sometimes you just don't get an exit hole on it, or maybe you hit them a, a little bit high and the cavity's got a fill full of blood, and so it's just not always a, a perfect scenario, and so yeah, you, you you don't get too excited after you shoot a bull, you make a good shot on them, don't get too excited, sit there and be quiet, wait your time, uh, you know, you kind of judge by the shot, or at least I do, by where I saw the arrow hit, um, you know, if it's a, a good shot, you know, I'll give the bull an hour or so or hour and 15 and take up trail. If it's a marginal shot, I'll, I'll give them a few hours. And, and sometimes if I hit them in the evening, I'll, I'll even get a, give them overnight. Um, I just know if I jump those bulls, you know, when they're hurt like that, I'm not going to get them. And so I try to judge my, my tracking time by where the arrow hit. Do you do the yep, same? Absolutely. Yeah. And same thing. If, if it's a, shot back behind the diaphragm there in the guts it's three or four hours for sure and a lot of times they'll only go 100 yards or 150 yards and bed down but even three hours later sometimes they're fully alert and and laying there and you've just got to really go in slot just quietly and slowly and uh try not to bump them and if you see them you know try to watch and see hey can i get another shot or do i need to back out longer and uh yeah you always as aggressive as i am for hunting i flip into very cautious and and tentative when it comes to tracking yeah me as well 
And yeah, I, I think um, whether you're calling or whether you're spot and stalking, I hunt elk aggressively too. Um, I, I think they're just meant to be hunt, hunted aggressively, <laughs> and I I can't just sit back and and watch and wait and uh, like I I've got to make a move. I've got to go in there. I've got to go coyote that herd, or I've got to go I've got to go try to kill that bull. And I I try to not get reckless and not get busted and chase those elk out of there. But I've got to get in the mix if I'm ever going to kill that. Totally, bull. yeah, and that's that's with calling we're trying to create an opportunity rather than hope an opportunity happens or you know wait for an opportunity we're trying to create an opportunity and it's i'm sure the same with spot and stock i've had as you say opportunity to spot and stock it's been more out of desperation because you'll just simply wouldn't call so i had to resort to spot and stock but uh yeah it's it has to be calculated and absolutely we're aggressive regardless trying to create an opportunity but it's not a it's not a reckless aggression mm-hmm. well um cory jacobson um man this has been a fun conversation i've learned a lot i'm gonna i'm gonna have some calls with me i've got to mix and match some more i've kind of got away from it um but i think you should have all all tools in your toolbox to to go hunt elk and i um so I, i'm definitely going to start calling a little bit more but i've learned a ton from you thanks so much for being on and sharing all this great information absolutely thanks for having me Yep, and so guys can find you um, on Instagram or Facebook, and then you've got the website Elk 101, which again is just a great resource for elk hunters at any skill level. For sure. Now we'd love to love to meet other people who are passionate about elk hunting and and share some of our experiences with them. Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Corey, and we'll keep in Sounds touch. Sounds great. Thanks, Brian. All right, that's a wrap. Um, another podcast in the books. Uh, just a uh, a really fun conversation. I am so fired up to hunt elk this year. Um, and Corey's just a, a wealth of knowledge. Make sure to check out his website, Elk 101. They just do a great job on there um, providing information and content for us public land elk hunters. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting fired up. I'm going to hunt, I think, a couple different states this year for elk. And in Montana, I'm taking the plunge and hunting a new spot. I, I've been hunting this location, and I, I have a few different mountain ranges I like. My home range is a really fun one. I'll always hunt that. But I love to travel to these new places and, and, and learn these new locations and, and look for bulls in there. And so I've been hunting this spot for five or six years, and I you know I think I brought a six-point out of there every year I've hunted it. But um, you know there's another level, and, and also just the challenge of hunting a new place. So uh, I was starting to get caught in a rut where I was hunting that place every year, and so I'm going to get out of there this year. And um, sad to see it go, but happy to find some new locations. And and it might be a little bit tougher to locate elk, but um, I, I'm just really excited at the opportunity. So I'm fired up about that. So these elk hunting podcasts are really good for me, just to get my plan for scouting and hunting and that. But um, yeah, thanks again to Corey for being on. What a what a great conversation. And uh, sponsor for today's show is Taito Knives. Uh, again, they're they're ultra lightweight, uh, ultra sharp. Rep- replaceable blade uh, knives so they you replace them with a, a different razor blade on there um, yeah they're just razor sharp uh, I love the 550 cord on the handles they've got good grip um, just a, a super knife I, I really enjoy using it I've been using it for the last couple years and um, they're just doing a great job and I love the the bright handled ones the the bright green and the bright orange and uh, you can really break down an entire animal with one lightweight knife so um, yeah, so so handy and, and uh, such a neat product those guys are putting out. So um, thanks again to Taito Nice for sponsoring the podcast. 
Uh, again, over there at Eastman's, make sure you check out the new website. Uh, I know everybody's been working really hard on it. Um, so if you have any interest of anything over there at Eastman's, uh, make sure to check that out. But that was a trip on my words there, but that's par for the course. Um, yeah, with that, uh, boy, I better get to work and um, get some get some work done right or wrong here. And, and uh, been bear hunting the evenings when I can, when we don't have a softball game or a track meet. Um, it's been good. It, it hasn't, like, turned on red hot yet. I've seen six. Um, almost killed that chocolate, which was fun. Uh, passed another blonde that was too small. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just been a riot. And it's kind of fun that... You know, I talked to you guys about my new mindset this year and having a tag in my pocket. And um, so it, it's kind of fun to, to look for bears. And I'm, I'm just looking for a good one, which, um, you know, I've, I've worked to that level to where I just don't need to shoot a, a, a smaller bear anymore. You know, if, it, if it's a good, decent one, yeah, I'm going to send it. I'm going to go for a stop because I love to hunt them and love to hunt with my bow. But uh, it, it's easier to pass up those smaller bears is is I just know, you know, the longer that season goes, I'm going to get my chances. I'm going to get my opportunities at a good mature bear. So um, good to, to put that new mindset in place or at least um, concrete it or solidify it a little bit. So, um, yeah, it's been really fun. Uh, grass is just getting ready. Like, it's just changing everywhere. And so these bears should really get on this grass. It should really turn on here in the next couple weeks. So, uh, I just need to keep going, get my work done, be hunting by evening. So um, that's pretty exciting. I'm getting ready. I'm going to go to Hawaii June 1st. I just I cannot wait to uh, see my buddies out there. I'm going to take my family and buddies, uh, uh, Robin and, and Sean and Janus. I'll bring my recording equipment out there. They're a riot to have on the podcast, but um, just great guys. I can't wait to see and hang out with them and then also sharing some hunting. Uh, gonna hunt those axis deer which are so switched on like um you know they they take me to their best hunting grounds and the place they take me there are a lot of axis but that does not that does not mean they're easy by any stretch of the imagination they're just so switched on that they're so challenging but you get to spend a lot of your time crawling through the grass or making stalks and making plays and, and so it, it's so thrilling you know and so i can't wait to go do that the goats are really fun to hunt and they're not as switched on as the axis but they live in this cool lava rock you know way up the um, where this volcano, where the actual lava spilled out. And so there's all this black lava rock. It's steep and grassy. And so those things are really fun to, to hunt. I can't wait to hunt those. And I, I really want to try to get a pig this year. I mean, if I don't, it's no big deal. But I, I hear they eat really good. And I saw some last time I was out there. And they kind of call that the trifecta is when you can kill an axis, a goat, and a pig. Um, so I'm excited to try to get some some pork on the ground too. I've never shot a pig. Um, Javelina is about as close as I come. Well, and they're not a pig, right? So uh, they're peccary, which is their own subspecies, but they, they kind of look like a pig and root around. Their noses look like it. So that's the closest I've been to a pig, but uh, would be fun to shoot one of those. And then I hear we're also going to take my buddy's boat over to Lanai and hunt those mouflon sheep. And they just live in some of the steepest, rockiest, gnarliest country that you can imagine. Um, so I can't wait to try that out for a day or two. That ought to be fun as well. So, um, well, I've been rambling long enough. Uh, yeah, I better get to work, get something done. 
Um, thanks a bunch, you guys, for all the support. Um, I really appreciate like the the reposts and the mentions in your your Instagram story and things. It's just so it's so humbling, like just being an an average working class guy that starts a podcast and and builds this following of guys that really enjoy listening to it. Um, I got a shout out. Uh, Cameron Haynes put me in his Instagram story. Um, so that was pretty cool to see that he listened to the podcast and and uh, liked it. Um, yeah, I, I know Joe Rogan shouted out the podcast before he's listened to it. So, um, yeah, it's just really humbling, you know, not only those guys, but all you guys. Like I, I get um, to see some of you, your guys' successes and, and your next level hunting and, and that you listen to the podcast. So anyways, it just means the world to me. So thanks so much for that. Uh, you know, it really helps me out on the iTunes Those um, when you leave comments there. Um, it just helps push the podcast to other people. So anyways, I just um, humbled and blown away at the support of the podcast and can't thank you guys enough. Um, have a good week. I'm sure you'll be thinking about elk after this podcast, and uh, I'll check in with you next week.